Well, I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now, we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless, so while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. Welcome everyone to the second live broadcast of our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program. My name is Steve, I'm a producer at Sounds True, and I'll be your host this evening. Tonight, Jack Cornfield is broadcasting live from Hawaii, while I and the Sounds True team are all here in our Boulder studios. Jack Cornfield trained as a Buddhist monk in Thailand, Burma, and India, and has taught worldwide since 1974. He is one of the original teachers to introduce mindfulness practices to the West. He holds a PhD in clinical psychology and is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society and the Spirit Rock Center in Woodacre, California. He has written more than a dozen books, including The Wise Heart, A Path with Heart, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry, and many more. Jack, welcome. Thank you. I'm very glad to be able to speak to everyone, in particular, very glad to be able to speak to you who are in this profound and transformative process of learning how to be carriers of the teachings of mindfulness and compassion, carriers of um, wisdom that the world really needs. And so in this particular hour, um, I'd like to take the first part of the hour to, to talk with you and then uh, following that, do some questions and answers. And I'd like to focus on the common difficulties that arise as people begin to learn mindfulness and compassion meditation practice, as they begin to do a kind of inner contemplative training, um, because these are the kind of things that come up all the time uh, for you as teachers. And of course, you'll be familiar with them in some ways, but I'd like to both review them and then talk about the strategies that are helpful in learning to deal with them uh, for students. I came uh, yesterday here to Hawaii. I'm uh, visiting uh, Ramdas, a dear old friend. Trudy and I are both visiting Ramdas. You can see a picture of Ramdas's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, on the wall behind me. And the day before that, uh, I was teaching in San Quentin prison. And in particular, I've been in San Quentin other times before. This particular group is a Zen group that's been meeting there for at least 10 years or more. And there was a set of about 25 black cushions set up in right a square in quite, in very much the same way that uh, you would find in a Zen center anywhere. Um, and what I was asked to do when I went there was to talk about the difficulties that come up in meditation because the Soto Zen instruction, their teachers were from San Francisco Zen Center, tells you to be mindful of your breath, 
and to sit and find a dignified posture, but it doesn't give really explicit instructions about what to do with all the content of experience that arises. And when I went through this content for people, um, they found it enormously helpful. And I realize that all of you who are in training to be teachers, um, while you may not be teaching in prisons, you'll be teaching people who get caught in the same way in their own mind and in their own heart. So um, let me go through the traditional five hindrances um, and then add another five um, and then talk about the skillful strategies to deal with them. Um, and these hindrances, if uh, the best translation from Sanskrit calling them hindrances are particularly called hindrances to clarity or hindrances to understanding or hindrances to well-being. Um, and you can read about them further in the book that Joseph Goldstein and I did together called Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. And if you look online, there are many, many other descriptions of teachings of how to deal with them. So the first of the traditional hindrances, and these you, many of you probably know, is that of desire and wanting, um, where you're meditating and whatever your experience is, isn't the right one. You want something more, you want something different, and it can be a very profound, deep longing, or it can just be that you're hungry. Um, we live in a desire culture, and so most of the teachings about our culture are that you should fulfill your desires all the time and the world is driven by it. But some desires are healthy and some are unhealthy as we've already talked about in the training. And the most important thing is to acknowledge that these are the kind of energies that will come as you sit. And the first one of desire pulls you because you wanna be somewhere else or you need something or you want something else that's different than what you have. And the beautiful thing is that you can begin to become mindful of it. And it turns out that as you pay attention, much of the longing or the desire and so forth, or the wish is actually around the anticipation. Neuroscience teaches us this, that the extreme is not actually getting the thing that you want, but it's all the anticipation for it. And you can know this if you, even if you decide you really want an ice cream and you go out for an ice cream um, and there's all this idea, I'm gonna go down to Baskin Robbins or the sorbet shop or whatever your favorite ice cream is, and I'm gonna get this best, best flavor. And all the anticipation turns out to be what you love, um, builds up in you and all your brain circuits light up. And after you have a few bites of the ice cream, it may taste absolutely delicious, but there's something that happens in your body where you go, oh, I feel good now. Not because you had the ice cream per se, but because the desire itself gets satisfied. And with mindfulness, you can watch the whole arc of desire as you're sitting, as you're practicing in meditation. And as you watch and experience with awareness, the arc of desire, um, you can notice it, see it rise, feel its experience and pass away. And then you start to find a freedom in relationship to it. So this is the first of the hindrances. Just one second. The second common hindrance, which you all know is the opposite of wanting, it's aversion. It's uh, pushing away, um, resisting anger and um, this too is really quite normal. 
in meditation. There'll be experiences of wanting and experiences of not wanting. That's the way our, our mind and our conditioning is wired. Um, and so if someone says, well, this is happening to me, I have anger or I have aversion. First thing you can say is, oh, good, you get to learn about this. You get to learn how to be mindful of this without being so caught in it. You get to pay attention to how it feels in your body or kind of what the stories it tells. And you get to learn about this so that these hindrances are actually the gateways to a much deeper understanding. Uh, the third is restlessness. And as you recall, when we talked about it and when you studied in the power of awareness, we talk about acknowledging restlessness with mindfulness. I'm letting it open. I even joked about letting restless, letting yourself die of restlessness. And one experience I have in my sittings early on when I had a lot of restlessness, is I said, I won't get up until I really want to get up three times. So I'd sit and when restlessness had come, I'd say, all right, I, I, I can't stand this, dying, restlessness, whatever. I really want to get up. That's one time. And once I let it happen for one time, then everything would settle down and get deeper. And then a wave of, no, no, I have to get up. I have to tend to this. I have to make this call. I have to do that. My body's restless. I've got all this. And I say, oh, here it comes again. Restless, restless. What does it feel like? And be mindful of it, acknowledging it, giving it space. It would diminish. And then the meditation would deepen. And then the third time it would come, I'd get up. So it's something that becomes workable, that you begin to realize you can pay attention to these energies and forces and learn how they move through body and mind and not be swept away by them. And then the opposite of restlessness is sleepiness. And again, sleepiness arises. We've talked about it. You can name it sleepy, sleepy. You can sit with your eyes open. You can bow to it. Okay, this is sleepy. Every human being has periods of sleepiness. And if, as I talked about in the past, if you go into the great temples of India or the Zen, you know, monasteries in Kyoto in the afternoon after lunch, you get these great Zen monks and yogis nodding away because it's just part of being humanity. Sleep comes from different for different reasons, sometimes because we're tired or our body is loggy from what we ate, sometimes because we don't have enough energy. You want to open your eyes or sit up straighter. And sometimes, as we've also talked about, it can come as a kind of cover because something difficult like grief or fear is arising and the body and mind puts itself to sleep. And then the last of the common hindrances is doubt. Um, am I doing this right? Uh, I can't do this. This is too hard. Those other people all look like they're doing it well when they sit and meditate and I'm, you know, I'm no good at it or I'm foolish or I don't understand. Self-doubt, doubt of others, doubt of out of mindfulness and compassion itself. And this is simply called the doubting mind. And we all have doubts at times. And again, none of these is wrong or a problem. They are simply an experience of our energy. When we're lost in it, it hinders our clarity because we believe it. And when we acknowledge it with mindfulness, oh, this is the doubting mind. All of a sudden, the space of freedom opens up. Now, here's five more kinds of difficulties that arise in the same spirit. Fear and anxiety, which perhaps is, a rela is related to the um, second hindrance of aversion. But you will see in the students that you work with, in the classes and places that you teach, um, 
that fear and anxiety will come off. And remember that passage from the poet Hafez where he says, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. The thing is that you can remind students that fear and anxiety are hardwired into our nervous system. There is the negativity bias that we talked about in our classes previous to this, in which we're wired to look for danger. And more than anything, in order to survive, we had to make sure there wasn't a tiger or a poisonous snake or something. And anything that moved, we had to first make sure it's not dangerous. And then a hundred other times it's not dangerous, we might or might not pay attention to it. So our nervous system is wired to look for difficulty, to be worried about it for survival. And then it activates the fight, flight, or freeze response. If something even seems a little vaguely scary in our personal life, in the community around us, in the body politic, within our own body, some weird experience, it activates that whole fight, flight, or freeze mechanism. And you can tell people, we're hardwired this way. This is natural. This is one of the energies you get to work with in meditation. Uh, another of the difficulties that arises is grief. People get quiet and the unfinished business of the heart begins to show itself. And you want to acknowledge <clears throat> that grieving and tears, they're called the tears of the way. The tears themselves and grief is part of the process of healing the heart and allowing ourselves to open into a kind of understanding and compassion for ourselves and the whole world. Mm -hmm. And that as I have quoted in the previous classes, um, among the Lakota Sioux and the Native Americans, a grief was considered a holy, uh, those who were grieving were considered most wakan, most connected to that which is holy, because their hearts were so torn open. So it is something that um, leads us to the great gateway of compassion. Then there is the judging and comparing mind, I'm better than or worse than or I'm doing it right or I'm not doing it right. And you all know the judging mind. We've talked about it a lot already. And the main thing that you can do when the judging mind comes, as with all of these energies, is to name it and acknowledge, oh, here's the judging mind again. Thank you for your opinion because you understand whose voice it is. Or thank you, but not right now. I'm okay right now. You can actually substitute some healthier thoughts for it. But initially... You simply want to see things the way they are. The judging mind is like this. And that you minute that you help your students acknowledge, oh, this is the judging mind. This is the doubting mind. And this is sleepiness or restlessness. Or this is the natural fear that comes because we're hardwired. Oh, this is just fear or anxiety. The minute you allow them to hold it with mindfulness and encourage this already it opens the gateway for some liberation. In the same way, um, there can be torrents of thoughts, what are called the monkey mind, or as you get quieter, seeing the inner waterfall. And again, we've talked about this. And to just let them know that when you see the mind is scattered and so forth, again, you can name scattered mind or monkey mind. And then when you do name it, and that you see it clearly, you start to become the awareness that's witness of it, the loving awareness of the mindfulness, and you're already a little less caught in it, although in a moment we'll talk about other ways to deal with it. But the very first step with all these 
is simply to become mindful with loving awareness and already it starts to free us. Um, two more, um, body pain comes and we've talked quite a lot about the body in previous classes and the difference that you need to understand between working with chronic pain and situational pain. Um, they both require mindfulness with situational pain because of the posture or an illness or something that you're dealing with right now. Um, that's something you pay attention to, soften around, allow to open, give it a name, mindfully pay attention. And as you hold it with compassion and tenderness, that begins to open and soften and ease. But if it's chronic pain, you can also say, this you learn to be mindful of, and then because it will weary the consciousness if you stay on it for too long, you can turn the attention after coming to some ease with the chronic pain, you turn the attention um, and direct it to something that brings a greater sense of well-being. And this is the last then of the hindrances to name, because I've been naming all the kind of difficult ones, um, is the hindrances of joy, ease, delight, all the positive states, um, contentment. And these may be unfamiliar to people. Some people don't know what the state of contentment feels like, or they feel that if they're experiencing joy, they're so loyal to their suffering, they think, well, maybe I shouldn't experience this, or delight, or they come to a place of inner peace and it's unfamiliar and they think, well, I must have some problems to worry about. And so you also want to acknowledge these states which are beneficial and healthy in the same way that you acknowledge the states that are more painful. Um, to name them, to acknowledge them, and to make space that they too can be held in the field of loving awareness. So then here are some of the principles that underlie working with these various states. The first is to normalize them. The mind is like this, the body is like this. When we sit, desire, aversion, restlessness, fear, anxiety, pains, judging, as well as joy and ease and contentment, all these things will come. This is the natural landscape. So when someone raise their hand and say, I'm experiencing restlessness or I'm experiencing grief, you can say, yes, this is absolutely normal. And grief is like this. Sleepiness is experienced like this. Um, joy is experienced like this. It is the way that it is. Normalizing is really important. And the second thing is to say, now you have the opportunity to be mindful of it, to bring a loving awareness. So that brings in that sense of warmth and mindfulness. And very often you can recommend that not only are they mindful of it, but that they name it. So that you acknowledge, oh, doubting, doubting, the doubting mind, or fear, anxiety, fear, fear. This is what feel, fear feels like. Or there's the judging mind, judging, judging. Thank you for your opinion. Um, this is what desire feels like, wanting, wanting, longing, longing. And so they begin to be able to use the tool of naming softly as a whisper, 5% in the mind, that capacity to be precise and present in mindfulness, and then to make the space around it of loving awareness. Then another step that you can invite people to do as they practice with these more um, difficult initial states um, 
is to suggest that as they are mindful, they might also notice where they feel it in the body. Where do you feel fear in your body? It might be in the throat or in the gut or in the belly. Um, uh, where do you feel anger? Maybe it's in the heart or in the hands or the arms. Where do you experience uh, desire or longing or doubt? Um, and sometimes locating it in the body. Oh, I feel the fear right here. Um, deepens the mindful presence. Not only am I trying to be mindful and notice fear, fear or, or, or uh, sadness or whatever particular experience is, but as I locate it in the body, um, all of a sudden my mindfulness gets closer to the experience and I can allow it uh, with this loving awareness and, and feel it on, on multiple dimensions. And somehow that allows you to come to a greater ease or peace with it. So normalizing it, becoming mindful with loving awareness, naming it, finding where it is in the body. And you don't have to do all these things at once. This is a kind of progression of ways to help people. Often just being mindful is enough. Um, or noticing where it is in the body is enough. Normalizing it. If there's still struggle, then the next element to bring in is that of compassion. Can you hold this restlessness with compassion? Can you hold the doubting mind with compassion? Can you hold this body pain with compassion? Can you hold your longing and desire with compassion? And as you bring in the sense of compassion, um, everything starts to soften, of loving kindness. And so instead of being reactive to and fighting against the experience, what happens is that it becomes a spacious ability to be truly present for it. And then the next thing that you can do, again, to invite people to practice with in the right moment, those who are struggling, maybe they're mindful, they bring in an element of compassion, or they find it in their body. You don't do all these at once. Some of it's kind of intuitive to guide is to invite them to give it space. If they're resisting it, it's worse, and it struggles, and it stays. But if they notice, oh, this is restlessness, let me see how big it is. Give it all the space in the world. This is anger, let me see how big it is. Oh, it gets huge. This is desire, let me see how big it is, and let me give the field of awareness, this loving awareness, the space like the sky itself. Let me open the field of mindfulness so that there's desire or restlessness or fear or longing and it's held in vastness. And so you invite whatever experience is present to be held in this vast space. Then with this presence, whether you're mindful, simply mindful, or whether you're mindful in the body, or whether you bring compassion and space to it. Another step in deepening is to notice what happens. What is this? And you notice that fear or anxiety has a sensation in the body, it has an emotion in the heart, and it has a whole story that it tells. There's body and story and emotions. You notice with sleepiness, there's a body sensation, there's some mood or feeling with it, and you may have a whole story, I shouldn't be sleepy, or I shouldn't have gone out last night, or I ate too much. Or, and so you notice all these different dimensions. And as you notice them, 
you can also notice that each of these dimensions is like a wave. There's a wave of sleepy energy that moves through the body. There's the wave of the story it tells. There's the wave of the emotion. There's the wave of fear that comes in the body and the story it tells and the emotion. Um, there's a wave of desire that comes and you feel it in the body. And then it has a story that it tells and it has a certain emotional tone to it. And you begin to notice the process of experience, how all these things rise and pass like waves. And you become the loving awareness that can be the witness to them all. Now, when they're very strong and they keep repeating themselves, um, there are a couple of other things you can do. And we'll be talking more about it as we continue the training. You can drop beneath them and ask yourself, what is asking for acceptance? And this goes back to the training in RAIN that we have done in previous classes to recognize and then to accept something in the center. If it keeps coming back the same thoughts over and over and again, or the same emotions over and over again, something is knocking on the door and asking for acceptance. And can you bring a compassionate attention to what's deeper here? Or you can say, thank you for trying to get my attention or even in some cases, thank you for trying to protect me. If it's anxiety or fear or doubt, thank you, I appreciate that. And then finally, you can also instruct people, but not in the beginning and not in general, but toward the end, if it's still coming, that they can put aside the experience. They can acknowledge it mindfully, hold it with compassion, and then turn their attention from the difficult experience to their breath or to loving kindness. Just like a woman I know who was a surgeon who had gone into, um, she was on call and she went into a late night um, emergency surgery um, in the middle of a fight with her husband. Um, it wasn't a good place for her to revisit what he did that was wrong and what she said and he said and she said and all that anger and all the frustration in their argument she needed to be able to put that aside and focus on her work as a surgeon. We have a capacity when it's called for to acknowledge what's happening, to say, yes, maybe I'll attend to this later, but right now I'm gonna go back and calm myself with the breath, steady myself in the body, or bring in the quality of loving kindness. Now there's one more um, dimension of working with these difficult energies to also acknowledge, and then we'll take some questions. And I realize that I'm giving a great deal of material to you, so you can listen to this um, class again. You might be able to take notes if there are parts that seem like they're important to you. Um, but keep it simple. Mostly it's to be mindful and compassionate and notice what happens. And then these are other skillful means of making space or locating it in your body or eventually putting it aside. The last piece is that each of these different difficulties also can be balanced by cultivating or directing attention to an opposite quality or, or a healthy quality. So for example, with desire, if someone struggles a lot with desire and they bring in compassion and they learn a great deal about it and they're mindful, you might also suggest to them 
that they begin to look for moments without desire, begin to look for moments of contentment or ease, which may be at first unfamiliar to them. And they could spend a day or a week as they're, you know, if you're leading weekly classes and you could give your class or this person or several people the assignment, I want you to look for moments of contentment, moments of ease, maybe even keep a little journal, um, moments when there isn't wanting and you're just present with the way things are. When there's anger and aversion, the most common antidote if you've been mindful of a time and you brought in compassion and you've noticed it in your body, you've given it space, but if it still keeps coming back a lot, um, then the traditional antidote is loving kindness. And you start with whoever you love most, whatever opens the channel of loving kindness. And when it softens the heart, then you bring that loving kindness and compassion right back to the situation that causes the aversion or the anger. For fear, um, one of the antidotes is trust. And you can't just say to somebody, trust, but what you can do is evoke the spirit of trust. You might, for example, be able to say to someone, um, can you think of a person you've met who is particularly trustworthy in whom you have trust? Or a situation which brought a great deal of trust um, into you, when have you felt trust? And allow them to remember through a person or a circumstance what it means to have a trusting heart. And then say, from this place of trust, let yourself now become aware that there's fear or anxiety, but rest in the place of trust. Similarly with sleepiness, the antidote, um, after you've been mindful of it and sat with it for a time and acknowledged it and normalized it and brought compassion, after a time, the antidote might be to add more energy, do more walking meditation, sit up straight, keep your eyes open, do some deeper breaths for a time. Things that enliven um, the body and mind as an antidote to sleep. For grief, one of the antidotes is tenderness. As we talked about grief being holy, that there's a way in which you hold the grief you sense where it is in the body, you name it gently, you bring compassion to it, and then you realize that we human beings are vulnerable and tender, and you bring the spirit of tenderness to that grief so that you can experience your relationship to it shifting in a way that opens and allows well-being um, and a softening of the heart. Doubt is the same thing. Um, first, you work with it by acknowledging this is the doubting mind. The doubting mind is like this. It tells these stories about me and others. Thank you for your opinion. There it is. Or like judging, this is the doubting mind, naming it. Doubting mind, doubting mind. No, locating it in the body. It might be in the head or the heart. Holding it with some kindness and compassion. Giving space, not resisting it. And then at some point, recognizing that there's a seed of something healthy in the doubt. And what's healthy in the doubt in Zen is called don't know mind. You might recall that uh, little anecdote of um, Somerset Maugham, who wrote Passage to India and other, other really famous books. Um, 
And he said, yes, there are three rules for writing the great English novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. And there's actually something healthy about doubting mind when it's called the great doubt, not the little doubts of I can't do it and I don't know enough and so forth. Those who acknowledge, ah, oh, this is self-doubt, thank you. Thank you for trying to protect me. But the antidote to the small doubt is called the great doubt. It's the doubt of who am I? What is this life? What is love? What does it mean to open? And so turn your doubts into some magnificent question. And with the monkey mind and the thoughts that keep coming and going, if you notice the content of the thoughts, the patterns, very often, and we've talked about this, if there's lots of thoughts of the future, you might drop down in the body and notice, well, what is it that's fueling these thoughts underneath? And all the future thoughts often are fueled by anxiety. And when you let yourself feel the anxiety, name it, anxious, anxious, then all the thoughts begin to quiet down. You realize, oh, I can just tend this fear with compassion and everything starts to settle. Or maybe your thoughts are all about the past. And if you drop down and say, well, what's fueling this? What am I feeling? And it might be grief or it might be guilt or it might be trying to rework some conflict or something. And when you acknowledge, oh, this is guilt or this is grief or this is the energy underneath it, those thoughts begin to quiet down because you've let yourself feel what's going on on a deeper level. Now, giving you all these instructions or teachings, I want to undo them in a way or remind you that the essence is to keep it really simple, to normalize and say, these are the human energies that come in body and mind. It's part of our human incarnation. These can be received with mindfulness. You can acknowledge them with loving awareness. You can name them gently. You might feel them in the body or the mind. You can bring compassion and space to them. And by doing so, you become the witnessing, the loving awareness, and they no longer have the same power over you to run your life or to create the kind of suffering that happens when you're caught in your anger and your doubt and your fear and so forth. And so you're offering to those who you are teaching this gateway to freedom, this gateway through mindfulness and compassion and these understandings um, to how to find freedom in their own heart and mind. So please, let's see what kind of questions do you um, have come in and be happy to try to answer them. Okay, Jack, a question that came in very early on uh, uh, states, I feel some stress and self-induced pressure to have handled my difficulties before I teach others. Did you meet this energy as a new teacher? And if so, how did you deal with that, that challenge of, of not necessarily having dealt with all of your challenges? Yes, and every honest teacher meets this because we're all beings who are still learning. And I remember some years ago when I brought my own teacher, Ajahn Chah, to our center in Massachusetts, and he helped teach a meditation retreat with myself and Sharon Salzberg, other teachers, and saw what we were doing and was supportive of it. We were out walking on the front lawn. It was a summer day. Sharon was walking with him, and he turned to Sharon. She was much younger than he was and said, so have you finished all your problems and your suffering now that you're a teacher? And Sharon said, no. And he said, well, how can you teach then? 
And she said, well, I, I know and I understand suffering and its cause and how to let it go. And even though it's not all finished, I really know the path to freedom. And Ajahn Shah smiled and said, good enough, good enough. Because we're complex human beings, and especially as a new teacher, you will have both doubts about yourself. And in some way, it will highlight the unfinished business in your life, in your own heart and in your own experience. Um, because you'll be saying all these beautiful things to people and then you realize, yeah, but I wasn't actually that skillful with my lover or my spouse or my kid or, or my employee or boss. Or I, I got caught up in that. And here I'm teaching these things, but I haven't really quite realized it myself. And this is one of the beauties of teaching when you understand that it is a practice. And sometimes by giving voice to what you know is beautiful, you're also talking to yourself and saying, hey, Jack, remember, this is something, you know, you need to work on yourself. Um, and so it's a natural part of the process. You want to be mindful of it, just as the questioner uh, suggests. Um, and then you offer what's beautiful anyway. And if it's appropriate at some points in the right way, you can even be self-revealing and say, yes, and sometimes I find myself also still working on the same stuff. And everyone goes, ah, oh, he or she is so honest about themselves and self-revealing. I like teachers like this. I'll follow them. So good question. Thank you. Jack, in your teaching experience, what has been the most difficult of the, the hindrances, whether it's the classical five or, or the additional five you added on, for students to, to grasp, for students to understand? Mm. The most difficult, I would say, is doubt. Because anger, you can feel the pain of it and the fire of it, fear, people want reassurance. But when people either doubt themselves and even more importantly, when they doubt that this can help them, they stop practicing. And they say, I don't think it's going to work. It's too, you know, it doesn't work. It's too hard. It's too whatever. I'm not ready for it. Um, and so doubt often stops people right in their tracks. Um, therefore, it becomes important to normalize it to acknowledge that it's part of the path for everyone. And if someone gets stuck in doubt, like any of these others, there also can be a moment when you see them really stuck in it, um, where you can inquire, um, does this happen in other parts of your life as well, where you have a lot of doubt? Because very often what happens in the meditation and where students get stuck is a mirror reflection of where they get stuck in the rest of their life. And the minute you say, hmm, I'm wondering if this same state of doubt that you can't do it or it doesn't seem right or, or you doubt the teacher or the teachings and so forth, does that happen elsewhere in your life? And then ding, 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 often the lights go off. Oh, yeah, it happens a lot. It happens at work or it happens in school. The same for some other hindrance where they might say, oh, it's all happening in the meditation. I'm so restless and bored. And you say, oh, yeah, I know it's very difficult to work with. Does this happen elsewhere in your life? Oh, yeah, you know, I'm always restless and bored. Oh, this might be something interesting then for you, this doubt or this restlessness. Um, this sounds like it's something actually very interesting and important for you to understand. Maybe you won't do anything else in the meditation. Begin to understand the doubting mind or the restless mind. Um, so there's a couple for an answer. 
So I'm interested to know, kind of following that, if there there's a particular principle that you've offered for um, you know teachers to help students work through you know normalizing uh, mindful loving awareness is there a particular one of those principles that you found is challenging for students to fully hold on to or fully grasp my experience is, is it's pretty individual some people have an easy time bringing compassion others find it easy to become spacious for some when you talk about being spacious they don't have a clue what you're talking about and they don't know really you know, or for others, you might say, Ken, where is that located in your body? And they're like that line from Mr. Duff, Joyce, James Joyce, that we use in Mr. Duffy living short distance from his body. And they can't locate anything in their body because they don't have yet a trained attention to feel what's going on in their body. So it turns out it's more individual than that. Um, and if someone says, I can't feel it in my body or... Um, you know, I don't understand what it means to make space for something, or I don't know how to bring compassion in. You want to become very patient, first of all, and say, all right, well, let's just sit quietly. What do you notice in your body? And maybe it's just, oh, my body's quiet, or it feels numb, or I don't feel anything. And you can say, well, begin to acknowledge that mindfully, um, quiet or numb or not feeling anything. What's that like to feel? And now let's bring again that experience in, um, as you feel that, where might it resonate? So you take this little tiny steps or similarly, um, I can't feel any sense of space. That's fine. Then just feel your feet on the ground and your body seated here in your breath and maybe sense that you're in a room that can you feel the whole room around you. So in very slow and little ways, you can lead them to understand, but it turns out to be rather individual. And this next question, uh, Participant shares an experience of being at a meditation retreat and someone in the retreat dealing with uh, someone's death and uh, having a, a mentor in that retreat give the answer, uh, God wanted him right now. The participant says that always felt really limited to him or her. They didn't leave their name. The question is, what do you say as a teacher in the face of you know this oceanic grief? This, this, you know, there are times that there's nothing to say and you feel on the spot to say something in that teacher role? Yeah, this is a very deep and powerful question. First, the answer that that other teacher gave of God wanted him to come home now or something like that. Um, it's not the way that I would approach things. Um, and it comes from, you know, wherever that person was coming from, perhaps from some religious belief system. But I don't think that it's really the direction that we can offer um, most helpfully. And um, the first thing, which really goes back to the, the, the essence of what we're discussing th in this particular class, is just to acknowledge it's like this. So when someone you know, speaks up with a profound grief, an ache and a brokenness, the best thing to do first is just to say, let's all take a breath and see if we can hold with some tenderness and care the depth and power of the grief that this person has just spoken with our own loving awareness and our own compassion. And so not only do you respond to them, but you are inviting the whole group to hold them with a kind of tenderness and compassion. And then you might give some very minimal teachings about grief and say, using these same principles, 
grief is natural when there's loss um, for all of us there'll be grief and it comes in waves and when it's been a great loss um, it can really uh, throw open the gates between the worlds and we're not even sure who we are anywhere more where we are you know what is birth and what is death it can throw our whole life you know into a kind of um, whether it's a, into a kind of chaos or or, or, or confusion, um, and underneath it is just the, the deep pain of loss. Let us learn first how to honor grief, that grief is a part of our humanity, and ask more than anything else that we spend time to honor it and to listen to it, because it will have things to teach us about how much we love and when it's the right time to let go and what we need to learn. Simple answers like that that aren't trying to fix it, but that are bringing the very elements of normalizing, of loving awareness, of making space, of uh, um, bringing in a deep compassion. That's using it not just for that individual, but also for the whole group at large. Marie sent in the question regarding restlessness. I found that so many students have a ramped up overstimulated nervous system. Would you recommend any practices to cool out the nervous system, like qigong or breathing practices? Absolutely. And one of the things that's been a great blessing in the last 20 years or more of retreats that I've taught, and I would do it in classes if I could, is um, to do some body movement before sitting. And during the retreats, we do qigong several times a day at some points, along with walking meditation. So if you're in a circumstance where students commonly come in and experience a lot of restlessness, then the kinds of movement training that Jonathan Faust, for example, has been offering as part of our training, those very simple movements, to do those initially and say, before we sit, why don't we do some stretching? Why don't we do a bit of Qigong? Why don't we do some of this um, mindful movement or yogic movement or whatever you have learned? Um, would be a really wonderful thing because that allows the body to release some of the pent up energy so that when people then sit, they're not struggling against themselves and carrying all that tightness. So I, I appreciate that question. Thank you. Jack, in relation to your instruction to cultivate the, the opposite quality, um, when it's particularly mm. difficult for, for that, that quality to arise, um, Deborah asks, is it really skillful to substitute obsessive thoughts with uh, positive ones? That feels a little like avoidance. Can you explain this further, please? Sure. So two things to say. Again, these are all great questions, and this one is. Um, the first one is the cultivation of opposite qualities is kind of way down on the list. If you were to give that right away to someone, they would lose the opportunity of sitting in with presence and learning how to be mindful and um, not so reactive to the states that come. Um, but the cultivation of opposites comes when there's a theme or something that comes back again and again, how do I work with this? Um, and uh, my response to this is to offer the, the Pali or Sanskrit word is upaya, which means skillful, uh, which is translated as skillful means. Um, Sometimes cultivating the opposite can be an unhealthy thing to do. For example, you feel a lot of anger and you say, I'm going to try loving kindness, loving kindness. 
because you're afraid of the anger or you can't bear it or you can't really be mindful of it in some way. And so you're judging it and you're trying to get rid of it and it'll make it all worse. But sometimes for that person or another person at another time who has been caught up in it a lot, to picture someone they love a lot, to start where it's the easiest, the person that they love most easily, um, and to soften the heart and think about how much they love this child or this other person, and then say, all right, now that that softness and loving kindness is present, let yourself um, bring in to your mind um, the pain and suffering you're having with this anger. So the question has a kind of intelligence to it of discriminating wisdom. What does the right skillful mean at a certain time? But just as I use that example for the surgeon, there are times to put things aside. And there are also times when it's helpful to cultivate its opposite. Michelle's question is, how can we navigate new students through the experience of another student in the class having a very agitated or emotional moment? How do we teach them through the urge to fix or not feel interrupted during that experience? Um, I'm not exactly sure. I get the general drift of the question, but I'm not exactly sure. Does it mean somebody's, they're all sitting quietly and then somebody starts breathing loud and moaning and kind of in the middle of a meditation? Or does it mean when you're having questions and someone raises their hand and I'm so agitated, I can't do this? In either case, here's what I would say. That's the time when you feel the energy taking over the class because this person has got such intense agitation or, or uh, restless or, or strong emotion of one kind or another. That is the perfect moment to say, all right, let's just breathe for a moment. You can feel, and you can say to the class, you can feel all the energy that's coming through this person, and it's actually here in the room. Let's take a few deep breaths and make some space and hold them, him, her, whoever, and, and the class, all of this with loving awareness. And then you bring your attention back to that person, and you say, um, all right, as you feel all the agitation or the anger or the fear, whatever it is, what happens when you bring a bit of loving awareness into it, when you begin to sense it with some kindness and mindfulness, um, even though it's still all there, can you do that? Maybe close your eyes and sense, say to them, can you close your eyes and just sense what happens when you bring in this field of kindness to what you're feeling. You're not trying to fix it or change it. You're just becoming aware of it in a, in a kind way. And so the key elements here are to pause to acknowledge what's happening. And in this way, you're actually demonstrating mindfulness. You become the mindfulness for the class, if you will, the mindful, loving awareness. And you say, let's all hold this in this way to name it, to make some space in that pause, to allow it with tenderness, with kindness, and then to direct it back to that person and say, all right, now can you hold this in this way? Um, and let's see what happens. Got some great questions coming in about um, bringing these teachings to larger and different audiences. Um, Kimoko asks, for secular audiences, introducing the concept of compassion is important, yet tricky. They understand the clarity of attention in mindfulness, but compassion sounds too spiritual or dogmatic. What is your advice on how we can skillfully share the importance of compassion to these audiences? 
again, um, a really important question. Um, for really, uh, for bringing in compassion to um, particularly secular settings, whether it's uh, scientific or educational or business settings, the best way to do it is to bring in some of the neuroscience and say, not only does mindfulness help in these ways, emotional and affect regulation, steadiness of attention, ability to either stay on task or in education to be able to focus and problem solve, um, resilience of the body, physical healing, responsiveness to others and so forth. But it turns out that the neuroscience shows that this is often complemented by the quality of compassion. That is, if the mindfulness also still allows a sense of aggressiveness or pressure or judgment, um, it doesn't work as well. But if the mindfulness is compared with, with compassion, and here are three studies, you know, Sarah Lazar at Harvard or Richie Davidson at, in Madison, or here's, you know, the overall summary of 20 studies that show that when you can add this element of compassion, it not only helps in healing in your own body and quieting your own mind and bringing greater focus and greater productivity, but it changes your relations to others. So in this way, you really talk about it as a, um, as a training that's now been both studied and uh, um, understood all of its benefits in neuroscience. And that's a kind of secular language um, that people tend to respond to well. And tagging on very similar to that with working with audiences in the instructions you've given on these hindrances and the principles to work with them, do you have any advice on adapting or shifting that language for working with children? <clears throat> yeah, I think there's always different languages for different groups. Being in the prison as I was, um, one of the other teachers who was in there, um, talked about the Buddhist Four Noble Truths, which talk about suffering, the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, and then the fourth truth of the path, the Eightfold Path to the End of Suffering. They did a very different translation for the Four Noble Truths. The way they said it is this way. Shit happens. You can make it worse. You don't have to. Here's how. And here's how included training your own heart and mind and in, um, in mindfulness and non-reactivity and compassion and so forth. For children, it's the same thing. Um, I think you want to find, because um, I don't know what age it is, is this teenagers or this little, you know, is it preschoolers or is it somewhere in the middle? You For preschoolers, you can use the language of animals, which was used a lot and, you know, in the early uh, teachings. Um, as kind of metaphors of certain of these energies. And what do you do when the, these animals come keep galloping in or the tiger roars and you get frightened or whatever it happens to be? Um, so you find a particular language for that age group. Um, and there are really wonderful books on teaching mindfulness to children. Um, Susan Kaiser Greenland is one of the fine authors. And um, there's a whole panoply of great books. Um, and they do change language in different ways. I mean, one of my favorite practices, which isn't a language practice, but used for very young children in preschools and so forth, is to place, have them lie down and place a stuffed animal, a little teddy bear or 
rabbit or whatever it happens to be on their belly and give that rabbit or that teddy bear a ride up and down. So they begin to notice their belly rising and falling with the bunny rabbit or the teddy bear on their belly and, and use each breath and now let that, let that ride slow down so that the, so that the teddy bear or the rabbit is having a very calm and peaceful ride, just a little bit of rise and fall of the belly. And they learn how to be mindful of their breath in that simple way. There's many, many skillful means like that. Now, there's one other thing that I want to add, um, because I know we're coming toward the end of our hour. And that is that for those of you who are teaching a class series, or those of you who end up teaching a day long and so forth, which are the two most common circumstances you'll be teaching in, to create your own talk, and it doesn't have to be very long, it can be 10 or 15 minutes, that names the most common hindrances or difficulties. The classic ones it could perhaps be, but it can be put in any of the others that I put in this list or the ones that you think are relevant for that group. And just to normalize it and say, as you sit, one of the things that you will experience, because everyone does, is the energies of distraction or difficulty that come because we live in a distracted culture. Um, and so you'll notice the pull of desire or the aversion, not wanting to experience something. You'll notice restlessness or boredom or sleepiness. You may notice fear or a judging mind. These are all natural. Here's how you work with them. You name them, judging, thank you, doubting mind, thank you, sleepiness, you bow to it, desire, you begin to experience it. And so by outlining and normalizing what's present and saying these are a place to practice and they're a gateway, a portal to deepening your sense of presence because you'll be with things that initially seem difficult and then you find a centeredness and an ease or a peacefulness in the middle of them where you're not so caught. This becomes a really important part of your training. And so to find your own way to systematically describe a number of these to name them, to normalize them in the sense, say, here's the simple practices that we are using um, to give you uh, an invitation to freedom in their midst. Jack, there's one final question that I, I feel important to get out before our, our, our time ends here. And this, this will be our, our last question before we conclude tonight. Um, this participant asks, what are the biggest pitfalls we should be aware of when working with students through these difficulties? Where are we most likely to become caught? Hmm. Most likely in your own self-doubt. And I think that gets cured by practice. It's like when you were learning to ride a bicycle, you know, you fall off a few times. And when you begin to teach, um, because very often since it's unfamiliar to you, there'll be circumstances and you won't quite know how to handle it. Take a little pause and a breath. You can even say, ah, oh, this is new for me. Let me see how I can help you in the best way. Um, but it turns out that after you practice for a while, just like if you practice piano or some musical instrument, guitar, um, at first you do it on your own, as you all have in your own meditation. Then maybe you join a group, but you're still relatively new in that group and you're coming together and you may not be the most accomplished musician. And after a little while, you practice together, practice, and you start to find your groove and you find your way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a certain rhythm and I can do this. 
um, it's a really trustworthy process. All of you who are in the training are here because of your own sincerity and because these practices and trainings have made a difference in your life. And these same practices and trainings can make a big difference in the lives of others. And it takes a bit of practice to do it. And um, sometimes you'll be a bit foolish. Uh, as great Zen master Ryo Khan, the most beloved poet in Japan, wrote, um, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. So we all have that that comes at moments where we're a little bit foolish. Um, but you also have the goods. You have such beautiful teachings to offer to people about how to be compassionate and how to be present and mindful in relation to the experiences of life, how to have a more peaceful and, and free heart and mind. Um, and with practice, you'll get better, better, at, better and better at doing it. And with that beautiful advice, we'll conclude our, our session this evening. Jack, thank you so much for, for being with us uh, tonight and, and taking this time with us. Thank you, Steve. And I'm um, deeply appreciative of all of those of you who are going through this training. Um, I have a great trust in the training that you're doing, in the sincerity that you bring, um, and in what will flower in your lives as you do it. So thank you. For Sounds True, I'm Steve. Thanks for being with us.